Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. We're your hosts, Dr. Narjus Duma and Dr. Stephen Liu. For Lung Cancer Considered, I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. You know, in this podcast, we usually focus on lung cancer and its treatment, but our topic today is somewhat lung cancer adjacent, but I would say increasingly relevant. In this episode, we're going to discuss the intersection of medicine and politics. We're joined by two very special guests, both experts in thoracic oncology with global reputations and both with political experience. Dr. Nasser Hanna is a thoracic medical oncologist professor of medicine at Indiana University, and the Tom and Julie Wood Family Foundation Professor of Lung Cancer Clinical Research. He is a true giant in the field, having led multiple large practice-changing randomized trials. You'll know him uh, from Nasser et al. Uh, He also ran, however, for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives in Indiana's 5th Congressional District. Nasser, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined by Dr. Raja Flores, the Stephen and Ann Ames Professor in Thoracic Surgery and the Chairman for the Department of Thoracic Surgery at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Flores really is a pioneer, if you know the field, uh, in the surgical management of mesothelioma and, quite frankly, minimally invasive surgery uh, overall for lung cancer. He is also a current candidate on the ballot for Mayor of New York City. Raja, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. And I really wanted to to bring you both in to talk about politics and medicine and not specific issues. I I don't think this is really the platform for that, but really about where these two fields intersect. And I'd like to start with a general, maybe a personal question. Why? Now, you're both extremely well-known, extremely busy clinical experts. You know, that translates into not having much free time. So, Raja, let me start with you. Why are you running for mayor? So it's interesting. I'm not doing it because I want to be a politician. I actually am not crazy about politicians. Uh, I'm doing it for a specific reason. Uh, I've been practicing for the past 10 years up in East Harlem in New York City. Before that, I was at Sloan Kettering. And when I started practicing here, I started seeing a different type of disease pattern, a different type of presentation from a specific type of patient. So since I've been here, the first several years, I operated on a number of aspergillomas, uh, fungus in the lung. And I always, you know, when I was at Sloan Kettering, it was 100% cancer. Once in a big while, we had an aspergilloma. Here, I started resecting more and more lungs for fungus. And I didn't put it together. I'm like, okay, I'm not in a cancer hospital anymore. So we just see more of this. Then several years ago, I started seeing a connection between people who lived in public housing and the fungus balls that I was removing from people's lungs. And I realized, oh my God, here I have another patient who has mold in their lung. And I said, let me guess where they live. And I'd look up where they live and lo and behold, public housing. And then that started being a recurrent theme. So several years ago, I joined several uh, community groups, uh, activists. Um, I also joined Community Board 11, which is the Community Board of East Harlem. And I realized, okay, this this is one way to get in there to try and figure out what's happening in the community. But I also joined another group called Community Voices Heard, 
where you had one-on-one interaction with tenants who lived in these conditions, falling down walls, mold, leaks, etc. And I realized they are fighting and fighting and fighting and no one's listening. No one actually cares. There's no money being given to public housing. And these are people who actually pay rent. So they're keeping up their end of the bargain, but the landlord is not keeping up his end of the bargain. And who's the landlord? New York. And time and time again, New York has been on the worst landlord list, number one, uh, for the past several years. And so it made me realize I've got to take care of these patients. What is the best way for me to take care of these patients? Because I don't want to just keep operating on them after the fact. And I said, wow, the only way I can do this is if I get a big platform where I can voice what is happening, the injustices that I'm seeing. Unfortunately, you know, running as an independent, no one's listening. It's all monopolized by the duopoly. And so running now has given me such insight into how the political system in our country is really geared and run by the two-party system, how they really manipulate things to maintain power. And it is not something that the voice of the people really can sway. And I'm trying to break this status quo by running. Now, we still have two months until the general election. I am on the ballot for that. And this is my single issue that I am pushing again and again and again. And if people listen, they will hear the truth about what's happening. So I'm trying to basically take care of my patients instead of operating on them. I'm trying to do it this way to try and prevent them from getting sick. Really just an, an extension of what probably brought you into to medicine overall, um, just a, a different way to do that. Exactly. I just don't see any other way to prevent it. I've tried. I've joined all these groups. We've written letters. We've met with Congress people uh, and we haven't gotten anywhere. Uh, And these patients are still sick. I go to their homes. I I go to every housing project in East Harlem. I have gone to, you know, Carver, Wagner, the polo grounds. And it's the same thing. The, The roofs are full of water. The walls are wet with fungus coming out of them. And no one's doing anything about it. And this is not something that you'd pictured as a, as a child growing up, a career in uh, politics. Not at all. I just I love operating. There's nothing more fun on this planet than operating. It, it is, you know, and at the same time, you're helping people. But the physical act of operating is just a lot of fun. I, I can't see doing anything else, but I can't turn my back on what I'm experiencing in my practice. I see. Nasser, uh, same question. What was it that prompted your run for Congress? Well, you know, I think people run for public office generally for one of two reasons. Either they are hopeful and altruistic or they're really angry about something. And uh, in 2009, uh, into the 2010 midterm elections, I ran because I was hopeful and uh, felt a sense of altruism. It's sort of the same thing that draws you to medicine. You wanna help people. And when you are a physician, you help the person in front of you and you help their families and their loved ones and uh, and maybe even uh, some extended providers. Uh, But you you feel like, well, okay, I've made an impact and that's a positive thing. But then you you wanna make a bigger impact. And so I had started a non-for-profit years before that called Cancer-Free Lungs. 
I was really interested in the tobacco issue, and uh, we developed a tobacco program for uh, for children to prevent kids from smoking, and, and that was very impactful. Uh, but then in 2009, the uh, Smoking Prevention Act, the Family Smoking Prevention Act was passed. That did a number of things, which included putting uh, the tobacco uh, cigarettes under FDA regulation for the first time, but it also raised the cigarette tax by a dollar. And that single act reduced adult smoking in the United States by three million. And uh, considering that nearly half of people who smoke die prematurely from their tobacco addiction, uh, three million just by signing your signature on a piece of paper was a pretty impactful thing. So there were a lot of healthcare debates going on at that time, and I thought that I could lend my voice uh, to that. And that's what really drove my uh, my action is is the sense that I, I could perhaps do something that would be more impactful for more people. So some common themes here really compelled through what you're seeing in the clinic and finding a different way to make a change, but maybe on a, a different type of scale. Uh, these are two sort of arenas that I don't really think of as as intersecting too often. Uh, you know, Nasser, when, when I think of medicine, is there a certain skill set that you develop in treating patients with lung cancer that translates particularly well to the political arena? You know, interestingly enough, I, I think there are some stark contrasts in the medical field and that there is some overlap. So let, let me talk with the stark contrast. So Oftentimes in the political arena, uh, somebody has already come to the conclusion uh, based upon whatever might be their biases or maybe their agenda. And then they have the facts sort of fit their answer. They uh, downplay facts that uh, sort of uh, go against it and, and they amplify facts that, that seem to support it. Medicine's kind of, we think the opposite where we uh, generate a hypothesis and then we test it. And as the evidence comes in, our ideas may change. And so some people get frustrated because the medical community could be recommending A at one point and then find out, no, you should be recommending B. But the truth of the matter is, is that means that the process is actually working as it should. You test the ideas and then you let the evidence follow. So that's where I think that there is a stark contrast in the beginning and the ending points. But a little bit of the overlap, interestingly enough, is that I, I think when you run for political office, there are really three things that are critically important. Uh, number one is that you understand the issues that are important to the community that you're going to represent. Number two is that you care about that community. And number three is that you actually know the people in that community. And the same is true in medicine. And I tell my, uh, my trainees this all the time. When you go in to see a patient, they expect three things from you. Number one is that you really know what you're doing. Number two is that you care and you can display that by listening. And number three is you get to know them, that you know them on an individual basis. And so interestingly enough, I think uh, uh, representing people in the political arena does have a little bit of overlap of how we develop those relationships of trust with our patients. Hmm. That's uh, well put. Raja, do you think there are traits that are necessary to be a great surgeon that also help one become a, a great statesman? 100%. As a surgeon, every decision you make, not only in the operating room, but the decision to take the patient to the operating room, you're weighing risk and benefit, life and death. So you're always weighing 
all the factors that are in this patient's benefit to get operated on, all the factors that are not in this patient's uh, favor to get surgery. And I think every political issue that you look at, you're weighing the same thing. What's the benefit for these this group of people? What is the downside? And you can't just focus on one group. You have to understand many different groups. What's their socioeconomic status? What's their racial makeup? Uh, you know, there, there are many things, you know, who are immigrants, who are not immigrants. So you have to weigh everything as a whole. And the patient becomes, let's say, New York City. That's the patient. And so you're looking at what's the difference between the Upper East Side, Spanish Harlem, how do you make it so that overall the patient, the city is doing well? And I think that, you know, there are some uh, negatives when you are looking at policy. It may benefit one group, but not another group. And in the end, you have to figure out, is that something that overall is going to benefit everybody? But more than anything else, the similarity with the patient is that you have to listen to your patient to really be able to treat that patient well. And what I have found based on my brief little political experience is that you really have to listen to the people out there. And let's say, you know, in Spanish Harlem, where, where I practice in, in, uh, at Mount Sinai, when you listen to what they say, and, you know, uh, Mount Sinai is in between the richest of the rich and the Upper East Side and the poorest of the poor in, in East Harlem. And you realize those two groups, while they may seem so different, they actually have the same goals in mind. They want a better city. They don't want crime. Um, they want a fair system. And you'll find that people in the Upper East Side will support people in East Harlem as long as they think it's reasonable. And people in East Harlem will not look at the Upper East Side and the rich as people who are the enemy, as the devil. Uh, they just want a fair shot. You know, during COVID, uh, the majority of hospital workers live in public housing. The majority of people who work here uh, are people who live in East Harlem, and they are living in these conditions with mold, with crumbled down walls, and they're paying rent. See, there's a false narrative with people who live in public housing that they are all on welfare, that they uh uh, they do this to themselves. And that is just completely false. First of all, the welfare rate of people living in public housing is half that as the general population in the United States. And most of the people living in public housing in East Harlem are the people who were in the hospital when COVID was sky high. They were the ones coming to work, taking care of the rest of, of New York. So we've got to change that false narrative and make them realize that it's in the city's best interest that these workers who live in these horrible conditions are just, uh, I don't want to say taken care of, but treated equally. They pay rent. They should live in a safe uh, home that does not make them sick. It's They're not asking for anything that is not just, you know, and but there has been this false narrative that has been put onto the patients living, to the people living in public housing because it benefits special interest. Because when you look at the real estate of public housing in New York, it's vast. It's three times the size of uh, Central Park. And, you know, the real estate groups, their eyes, you know, they, they want a piece of that. They see all the profit they can make in that. And you got to realize if you get rid of that housing, 
Where's the city going to get its essential workers from? Where are they going to live? They're going to have to commute from, you know, they're going to end up working someplace else. So the whole patient, which is the city, is better off when you take care of those people that live in public housing. And the people on the opposite end, on the Upper East Side, understand this and want to work together. So this political environment is so polarized right now where we can't get anything done, whether it, it, you know we cannot benefit society as a whole because we're so polarized. And we've got to come together. And I'm, I'm hoping with, with this run for mayor, I can bring out some of the injustices that are there and, and hopefully try and unify people as an independent uh, because the political parties are so polarized right now. They're, they're not listening to each other. It's just a battle for power. So um, I know I touched on many different things, but basically I do think the decisions I make every day as a surgeon, weighing the risks and the benefits are the same decisions that politicians make. And we see the direct effect of our decisions. As a surgeon, we have morbidity and mortality. We're always checking ourselves. We're always making sure that the decisions that we make are in the patient's best interest. And as a politician, you have to be able to do the same. You have to step back and say, was this in our uh, in, in the people's best interests or not? Yeah, uh, you know, I really uh, appreciate those comments greatly. I I, I, uh, I I found myself just nodding in agreement with so much of what you said. You know, I, I think the political parties have to exaggerate their differences. I don't think the differences are as great when you talk to people. I, I have patients who are Republicans and Democrats. Some are socially conservative and some are socially liberal. And when, when you talk to people, sometimes you can't tell initially what they are because, you know, the, it's usually based in, you know, goodness and love and well-meaning. And, you know, and, and sometimes uh, I think it's to the advantage of two political parties to exaggerate those differences. And one example of this is sometimes the issues flip between parties. Sometimes one party is uh, for a certain thing, free trade. And then suddenly, 20 years later, it's the other party that's for free trade. And so you sort of have to keep people on your team. And the way you keep people on your team is by driving the wedge, usually on cultural issues. And the cultural issues also get exaggerated because you'll find that the vast majority of people usually agree on a sensible middle, and is, but they're not on the extremes. But, but you know, the parties uh, try to emphasize that. I'd also like to um, uh, underscore a point that Raja made regarding uh, fairness. You know, uh, people generally are willing to do their part if they know you're doing your part. And it's the sense of shared sacrifice that I'm not getting screwed. And so the sense is, look, if we're all in this together, I'm willing to take a little bit of a hit if you're willing to take a little bit of a hit. And I have a sense that this is fair to all of us. And, and if that's the case, I think most people are willing to move forward. And the last point I, I, I want to say is just to underscore one of the things that really drives my interest in, in social justice. And that's this I I issue of, of the poor. Most poor people work. Uh, most people uh, are honest. Most people uh, go to a job every single day. And th they're the folks that are, you know, cleaning the streets and cleaning your hotel rooms and working in the restaurants. And 
you know, most most poor people are are, are uh, hardworking poor people, and they live in difficult circumstances. And so, I love the fact that Raja is a, a champion for for that group of people because they need their champion because they don't have big checks that they can write, which oftentimes influences where the dialogue goes. And I, I like the way that you you put that, Raja. The health of the city. I hadn't really thought of it that way, um, but there are a lot of parallels. I want to talk a little bit about some of the practical things. I know so little about this whole process. You know, the idea of campaigning really is fascinating to me. I only know what I see in the movies and the television, but it seems like a really grueling sort of draining process. But how do you do that as a physician? Uh, do you need to step away from your practice to campaign? So that's what I'm hoping the media steps up with. I am still full-time surgeon. I am still the head of my department. You know, I've got a bunch of different attendings. Uh, and if there's an issue in the operating room, I'm here. I'm jumping in the operating room. I'm I'm 100% still working, period. And <clears throat> that being said, I've treated thousands of New Yorkers. So I've actually touched probably a total of 20,000 New Yorkers. Uh, so I've had that you know, I've been campaigning for 30 years, you could say, you know, I've been in this city all my life. So I don't feel the need to go out there, especially with the internet, with the media, if they do the, the right thing, uh, to get the message out there. If you Google me, there's like hundreds of things that pop up. You will know me just by what's on there on the internet. And I think campaigning is a way to try and get people to know you. So I'm not going to campaign like a regular politician. I'm not going to be, um, you know, trying to get attention. I am going to do what I've always done, which is go to the places that need it. I frequently go to uh, public housing uh, areas to look at their apartments to see if I can correlate their sickness with where they live. I've done it with asbestos-related diseases, uh, I'm doing it with, with mold. Uh, you know, I, um, it's something I've done my whole life. So I'm hoping that the media and the powers that be will just do the right thing. Here is a candidate who jumped through many of the pitfalls to end up on the ballot. And believe me, to get on that ballot was no small feat. There were so many different things. I mean, we, we really had two lawyers involved um, because it is geared so that people who are not part of the duopoly don't make the ballot. And there was a very prominent Republican candidate who was running who actually did not make the ballot just because of technical details. So it's actually a miracle that we actually did. And my campaign is run by medical students. It's not even, we have no consultants. It's run by med students. So uh, I ended up talking to one medical student one day saying, you know, I was thinking of running for mayor. Next thing you know, my phone's getting flooded by medical students who are like, yes, run, let's do this. And they're the ones that had the uh, perseverance and the intelligence to figure out this labyrinth of pitfalls with the Board of Elections to actually get us on the ballot. So I'm hoping that, you know, there's about six candidates. If the press does what it's supposed to do and gives equal time uh, to each candidate, Hopefully our message will get out there and um, and they can know who I am, what I stand for. Uh, and if my ideals uh, and values align with theirs. So we'll see. Um, but I, I 
I just can't stop operating and taking care of people to run around and say, hey, look at me, I'm running. I, I just can't do it that way. Yeah, and I, I would imagine that also in the middle of a pandemic, it's probably not exactly. holding rallies and so forth. But if we go back a, a, a couple of years, Nasser, if we could look back at, at your campaign, were there challenges with running a campaign and holding a faculty position at Indiana? You know, a lot of the responsibilities you have, as Raja alluded to, you know, clinical investigator, collaborator, oncologist, you can't put those on, on hold, right? No, you can't. And, uh, you know, I think that there are really two parts of a campaign. The first part is the primary, and then the second part is the general election. And frankly, the primaries are fought by who is uh, most connected in their party and who is most well-known. And honestly, that often, and not always, there are always exceptions to this, but you'll find those folks have been involved in that party for a long time. In fact, many of the candidates might have even been a county chair, or they've been an activist within the party infrastructure for a long time. So they have a lot of connections, and it's hard to be an outsider who's not well known to sort of crack into that. Now, if you are running in a district in which your party is so gerrymandered out that there's just no chance of winning, you can probably run fairly successfully and get your party's nomination because there's no competition and you'll get slaughtered in the general election. But if you're running in a district that is highly competitive, especially if your party is likely to be the winning party, you better be well-connected. You better either be independently very wealthy that you can run lots of ads and get people to know you or you have to already be connected. For instance, uh, the unions are very influential within the Democratic Party, and uh, those union leaders have to know you, and they have to have a long track record with you. They have to have full trust in you, and those relationships are usually built over a long period of time, and it's not somebody who just campaigns for the first time suddenly gets to the top of the list. And, and so that's the challenge, and there's really those two parts to the campaign. Um, it is difficult. You have to do things after hours. You cannot use, quote unquote, company time or company resources for any of this. And so it was very common for me after work to go drive to a meeting to, you know, I can recall lots of uh, very uh, kind of lonely drives to someplace I'd actually never been to to talk to six or eight people after a long day of work. And it was very difficult. And of course, your weekends are always very, very busy. The third part to this is not only work and campaigning, but your family. I had a young family at the time, and you can't abandon your family either. So it, it is uh, very difficult. I did want to kind of touch on something that Raja said, which was really one of the most eye-opening experiences and something that I really learned on the campaign in this sense of what he says, do the right thing. And what you discover is sometimes doing the right thing is less obvious when you understand all the aspects of an issue. And it may be obvious to you what the right thing is, but then you listen to other people who have other interests and you kind of find out that maybe there's a little bit more to this than what you're thinking. And maybe you've been a little bit narrow in your thoughts. 
Now, I certainly think the awful conditions and housing, there is a right and a wrong there. <laughs> you know, that's for the health and well-being and humanity that we show one another. But I'll just give you one quick example. So I'm a big proponent of a low interest student loans and the government student loans are the lowest interest student loans. And there are a lot of private loaning agencies that charge very high rates. And so I was for just uh, federalizing the student loan program and just getting rid of all these private loans and making everything one and a half to two percent interest and and so forth. And I ran on that. And then I found out 3000 employees in my district work for one of those private loaning agencies. And so you're really putting 3000 of your own people out of work. And so what do you do? What's the right thing? Well, if you're representing your district, it's to support those jobs. If you're thinking more globally about students and wellness and so forth, you're for low interest student loans. So that's the, that's the difficulty you can sometimes run into uh, when you uh, start to see some other sides to the issue that, that seems so obvious. Of course, we want low interest student loans. And then you find out 3,000 people will be put out of work if you do that. You know, this is obviously, you don't run in a, in a vacuum and you're seeing patients during the campaigning process. So your, your patients know that you're running. How have your patients responded, Raja? So that's interesting. That's something that I thought about because, you know, before I ran, I realized I'm taking a big risk. I have this career that I've been working on, you know, for, for years, you know, uh, doing research, writing papers, building a practice. And I did feel like I'm risking it by running. And I thought by running that some of my patients and future patients would see that and say, you know, I'm going to go to somebody else. This guy's too busy doing this. I'm going to see another surgeon. What I found is my practice has gotten even busier. Um, They see something in it. I think they see an altruism in it. Or, or, or some passion in it that makes them want you more. So, you know, and I've gotten that from a number of my patients who saw multiple surgeons, which is usual in New York City, where they said, oh, you know, these surgeons said, oh, you know, Flores is running for mayor, saying it in a derogatory manner. Meanwhile, the patients on my operating room table. So it's just interesting it had an effect that was the opposite of what I thought. I thought my practice is going to take a dip because of it. My practice has gone up. <laughs> so, um, and I think, you know, one of my patients said, well, if you're so passionate about this, I'm sure you're going to be that passionate when you're taking care of an individual patient in front of you. Uh, that is how I feel. Um, but I was surprised that my patient did see that. And, you know, in the end, politics, being a physician, it's all about people. And, you know, since I was a kid, why did I become a doctor? It's because I felt that pain. I, I felt what they were feeling. I, and I, I couldn't just stand on the side. I mean, I've gotten my butt kit kicked as a kid because I jump in there when I saw a weaker kid getting picked on and I jump in there and I get beaten up. So uh, I, um, I've always couldn't just stand back and watch something happen. That's just I, I don't know. I was born like that. So uh, I think, you know, my jump into the mayor race um, and it's interesting because I, I'm not really looking at it as politics, like a congressional seat or a Senate 
seat. I, I'm looking at it more like, hey, this is on the street type of New York, people taking care of other people. Uh, yes, I know the New York City mayor, it's you know considered probably the second toughest job you know, next to president. But I, I'm looking at it more on a street level. These are people that I see every day that I grew up with, that I work with, and, and, and they're being left out. And, and I, I've got to fight for it. Um, so that, that's how I look at it. Yeah, so you show that you you care, and I think people respond to that. Nasser, do you have a similar experience? Hundred percent. And you know, I come from a very culturally conservative state. Now, Indianapolis itself is is um, is much more liberal, um, but uh, the surrounding area is very culturally conservative. Uh, but your patients love you for it, uh, even if they disagree with you. Uh, you're elevated in their eyes for exactly what Raja said. And that is because you're out there caring and trying to do what's best. And it really enhances the sense that you care for them too. If you're that passionate and you're, you're willing to put your neck out there and, and really talk about these things, they, they, they don't, they, there is no negative. Even if they completely disagree with you, they trust you even more and they love you for it. And um, that's one of the things when I talked about, people are not as, you know, there is some division, there's no doubt about it. But on an individual basis, uh, I can talk with somebody, uh, particularly one of my patients, whose political views are the polar opposite of mine. And we can smile and hug and, and just enjoy each other. And, you know, disagree, but it doesn't mean we hate each other. And actually, we trust each other. We enjoy talking with one another. And um, I can assure anybody who's looking to run for political office that uh, the relationships with your patients will not suffer. It, they don't think of you in that way. Uh, they, they actually love you for the fact that you're engaged. You know, I, I will say, I mean, you're bringing up so many good points. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective in, in my head. You know, political discourse lately has become so divisive and so passionate. Um, and I guess I've just always thought that as physicians, you know, we obviously are committed to caring for patients of all races, classes and creeds and political inclinations. But as a result, in my own head, I, I kind of uh, tend to keep my own political beliefs to myself, you know, if only to, to avoid conflict in the clinic, to really create a, what I think is a very welcoming space but you know, more and more, I recognize that you sacrifice part of yourself by doing that, and you know, sometimes that's really hard to do. You know, I think increasingly people have found it more difficult to abstain, more difficult to be silent um, in, in the current climate. So, I guess my question to you both uh, is: Does a physician have to be neutral? You know, are there some aspects of providing medical care that are antithetical to politics? Now, Raj, your thoughts? I am. Um... I do my best not to bring up politics. It's the patients that bring up politics frequently. Uh, when I see a patient, the first and foremost thing I try and do is not judge um, because you can look at a patient and think, all right, they're definitely of a, this type of political persuasion or uh, they're this type of person. You know, I, I've taken care of people um, who have been, uh, you know, who've killed people who are in jail. I've taken care of politicians. I've taken care of billionaires. I've taken care of people who live in public housing. So as a physician, I think you've got to do your best to 
get all of that stuff out there, just see this human being who loves their family, who's scared, uh, who you just need to nurture right now. And I know it sounds a little a little touchy-feely coming from a surgeon, but but that's the way you got to look at it. And I think that um, clearly everyone has their political views. Uh, and the fact that I can operate on people from both ends of the spectrum, from the very far left and the far right, makes me realize that the only way you can do that is if you create a, a neutral environment in your clinic when you're seeing them. Uh, so many times I'm listening to what they're saying, but I'm not arguing with them. I'm not discussing my viewpoint. Uh, when somebody comes in, they go, you believe this? Oh, you know, oh, this freaking Trump. Oh, freaking Biden. You know, I just listen. I don't say anything. And I just try and fix their problem, whether it's lung cancer, esophageal cancer, or it's, you know, it, so as a treating physician, Number one, you have to not judge, which is an active thing. You know, we have our internal moral compasses. You, you, have, you, you can't help it. You can't judge even if, you know, it, it's a hardened criminal. You've got to treat that person. That person right now is vulnerable. And I think so within that area, you have to create a politically neutral environment. Yeah, that's good, good advice. Nasser, um, your thoughts, you know, is being a physician sometimes at odds with being a successful politician, sort of the way the system is set up? You know, can we really wear both of those hats at the same time? I do think you can. And I 100% agree with what Raja just said. You know, your obligation is to that patient. And I, and, uh, you know, it's, it's 100% that. And uh, you have to be actively aware of your own biases and the things that, you know, your own moral compass. You have to be actively aware of that so that you can be sure that you're balancing uh, the way that you're approaching a patient in a fair manner. And um, I actually sometimes take it on as a challenge, the more difficult the patient maybe the more disadvantaged the patient, maybe the more society has pushed the patient away for whatever reason, the more uh, moral obligation I feel to, to not be that guy, to, to actually be the champion of that person who, who's being pushed away in so many other directions. So I actively try to work against the, the impulses that might be uh, pushing in the same direction that society has for the person. And the person that you mentioned, the, the person who murdered, you know, obviously uh, that's uh, going to raise uh, some conflict in, in any thinking person's mind. But you, you, can't, you can't think like that as a physician. Uh, you, you have to focus on what your, uh, you know, what your responsibilities are, and it is for that individual person, and it's it's for uh, their their health and wellness in every respect of the definition of health and wellness. So uh, I don't think those are in conflict at all. So let me go a little deeper in this. Um, well, I think for some of those reasons, a lot of physicians historically have avoided political discourse, at least publicly. You know, we are seeing medicine reluctantly and somewhat forcefully being dragged into politics. You know, the past few years, we've seen questioning, we've seen outright defiance of public health authorities like the CDC. We have seen vaccines, you know, the very bedrock of public health being politicized and, and used uh, as weapons. You know, we see science being questioned. We see messages being manipulated. When that happens, should we as physicians extricate ourselves from that? Do we need to distance ourselves from this more 
Or is it the opposite? Should we be compelled to provide expertise? Should that compel us to be more active uh, participants? Raja, let me let you go first. Yeah, so that is a very difficult situation that we're in nowadays. When you look at someone like Fauci, uh, you know, he's getting dragged in the political mud. And he has been a pillar in medicine for for decades. Uh, You know, I mean, I I think he's on the Harrison's book. I don't want to admit that I've actually looked at the Harrison's book, but I I think he's even on on the medical text. Um, I think you have to be the adult in the room. Uh, You know, everyone is going to be kicking and screaming and yelling and pointing fingers. And as a physician, as a scientist, you have to be consistent in your message. This is what the science shows. This is what we're doing. And, you know, people are going to try and throw you under the mud. Oh, he's saying that because he's a lefty. Oh, he's saying that because he's a right wing nut job. You know, so I think you have to just look at the science. Let's say with vaccines, for instance, you know, right now, all at least everyone admitted in my hospital right now, they're unvaccinated. Uh, if they are vaccinated, they are immunocompromised for another reason. You know, the most recent data showed 99.2% uh, of un- unvaccinated people. Those are the ones that are, are, are getting sick. And I think that we just have to be consistent in our message. And, um, and you know, with COVID, things are changing. So sometimes they take the changing of the message based on new information that a scientist would use to give across the correct uh, way to treat or the, the, the correct way forward, they take it and they manipulate it as political flip-flopping. And I think there's a big difference with that. It's, um, you know, with, uh, I think as physicians, you just, you've got to focus on the science, try your best to keep the blinders on, to keep the political rhetoric out of it. And in the end, people will see it. So with the vaccines, you just need to keep hammering that home. You know, we don't have smallpox anymore because of vaccines. You know, young kids, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, hepatitis, you know, and as long as time will will show you the truth. And I think that, you know, uh, what we're seeing now with the vaccines is a shame. You're seeing a lot of right wing political commentators dying because they believed in their own rhetoric enough to die for it. Vaccines save lives. We're seeing it now in real time. And as doctors, we just have to keep hammering that home. And you know what? Republicans and Democrats believe it. It's just these fringe groups that are promoting falsehoods for their own personal purpose. That's all I I can think. but I think we have to be consistent and, and, uh, and just have the patient's best interest. And right now, the patient's best interest is a vaccine. And that's the message we have to keep getting out. Nasser, do we have a responsibility to, to speak up? 100%. To not do so as a dereliction of duty. I, I had a patient or I had a friend the other day said, there's so much information. I don't know who to believe. And I said, believe the doctors, <laughs> but believe the, the National Institutes of Health, believe the Centers for Disease Control. That's who you believe. You, that's your authority. That's where the, the, the voice of, of, of uh, science is coming from. And so you, you can't avoid hard conversations. That's a complete lack of leadership. 
uh, leaders don't shy away from, from difficult decisions and difficult conversations. Um, it's just like if you had a patient who's smoking and you just don't talk to them about it because, you know, you know that, it, that you know, you'll make them feel guilty. You know, you, you still have an, a duty. Your patients expect you to talk to them about these difficult issues. And my gosh, if, if you're not going to do it, then they must get a message that, oh, well, see, those other voices that I hear are just as credible as the, you know, Dr. Hanno. He would have certainly set me straight, but he didn't. So therefore, I'm still confused. So uh, I, I think, you know, those are the conversations that we are responsible for having. I, I want to be conscious of, of time. I know you're both very busy, but the, one more question here. Nasser, you didn't win the election. And I know that must have been very disappointing, but I do think the field has improved as a result. Um, but would you consider running again? So I will tell you that um, getting on a ballot uh, in which your name, it's your name. There's nothing more personal than your name. Your parents gave you your name and people vote and it's completely anonymous. It's very personal and it hurts. It really, really hurts. And you can fill in the blanks as best, any way you want as to why you didn't win, uh, but it's it's hard. So I will say that uh, I admire people who run um, because it is personal. You're really putting yourself out there. It's very vulnerable. And um, so I don't plan on running again. Um, I think there were some very positive experiences and, and I did learn a lot. And I think it's actually, I know it's a cliche, but I think it's made me a better person. Uh, I don't intend to, uh, but I do encourage others who feel that call to do so for the right reasons. And, uh, and I, I really do kind of admire people who do stick their necks out there, and uh, especially when they are not likely to win, it, because it's really hard. Um, and so, yeah, thanks for asking that. Well, the, you know, the, the lung cancer community certainly does benefit from your time focused on us, so I, I view that as a, a silver lining there. Raja, if you are elected um, uh, this November, would you then have to step away from your practice? Yeah. So I think that is um, that would be the hard part. But yeah, if they gave me the privilege of uh, being the mayor of the city, I would gladly step away for at least the next four years to focus and give everything that I could to the city. Realistically, yeah, I know I'm a long shot. I'm not even in, in a political party. Uh, you know, I'm running as an independent. And uh and that's why I hope that they will listen to the main message that I'm trying to get across about half a million New Yorkers who are in, in, in tough shape with the way they're living in ways that are making them sick. Uh, so in my mind, I don't know how, I didn't know what else to do. I've already been on so many organizations. I've done everything that I possibly could. So I'm really running for these half a million New Yorkers to expose the injustices here. Um, I know my winning is highly unlikely, um, and I understand that, and I'm okay with that. Uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker. This is my hometown. I love the people that I'm fighting for, 
And, um, you know, I, I'm like I said before, I, I, I know what it's like to get my butt kicked. Uh, I've gotten my butt kicked a bunch of times in my life and I'm not afraid of it. I can take a punch. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm giving it all I got. And um, and we'll see if hopefully at the end of this, maybe New York City can be a better, better place because of some small thing that I'm trying to do. You know, I, I have so many, more, so many more questions, but um, I, I know we're at time. And so uh, we'll have to bring this episode to a close. Nasser, uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Raja, extremely busy schedule, I can't imagine, but thank you for taking the time. Uh, you know, best of luck. We'll all be pulling for you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And Nasser, I appreciate your insight. Thank you. And thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. I hope you'll tune in on the first and third weeks of every month to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 